What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello. Welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series, hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and the New Books Network Partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobilities and method. My name is Lakshita Malik, and today I'm joined by Dr. Gabriel Dattasrayan, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Anthropology at Goldsmiths University of London. We are in conversation about his book, The Globally Familiar, Digital Hip-Hop, Masculinity, and Urban Space in Delhi, published by the Duke's Univer- Duke University Press, uh, set to release in October 2020. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Uh, Rayan about his new book. So welcome, Doc, uh, Gabriel. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll just quickly start. And the first question I'd like to ask you is just how did this project get conceived? And how did you start working on these uh, concepts of gendered aspirational mobilities through digital hip hop? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I was sitting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So I did my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, just kind of you know, trying to think through how to explore a set of questions around, um, really loosely around kind of gendered, racialized subjectivity um, in South Asia. So what I had noticed in my training and just in my, you know, my my um, relationship with urban India. So my family's from India. I spent, uh, I grew up in the U.S., but I spent quite a, t- a bit of time going back and forth between Delhi, Bangalore, uh, Chennai, and the U.S., New York, where I grew up. Grew up, and one of the things that I grew up noticing, um, but then also, you know, very quickly f- saw in the literature on um, urban gendered subjectivities was that there was very little kind of to say about um, about those who were not occupying very visible kind of positions, right? So um, while there's been a lot said and written about uh, upper caste, middle class uh, masculinities in India, there's been very little said about uh, migrants, uh, lower caste subjectivities. And so I started to kind of think about how I might approach these questions without kind of uh, reproducing a problematic entry point or method. And by that, I mean, you know, looking for the the kind of subaltern subject uh, and trying to find that authentic subaltern subject was not what I wanted to reproduce, right? So um, as I was sitting in Philly, I started to see through some of my networks videos of kids in Bombay, but then also in Delhi dancing um, throwing up graffiti pieces, uh, really kind of engaging with hip hop. And it, it got me really curious about who these young people were, who these young men in particular were. Uh, and so I went out for my first uh, just kind of exploratory field visit in 2012 and ended up meeting a whole bunch of young people very quickly in Delhi uh, who's backgrounds were incredibly diverse, right? So we there were young people whose parents were from Garhwal that had come to Delhi in the previous decade to find work. There were Afghan refugees. There were Somali refugees. There were um, kids from Bihar who had um, also had their parents come to 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 Delhi to find work mainly in the construction sector so the city was undergoing this big boom at that at that time and so just kind of finding this this um this milieu that I had not anticipated all because I was kind of interested 
right? In these larger questions around what what kind of urbanization um, produces in terms of male subjectivities, but then this this kind of very specific interest in like who's who's producing hip hop uh, all of a sudden in in urban India in 2010, 11, right? So that 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 was a that was a that was a question that started to get shaped. Um, I guess primarily because I had thought about popular cultural circulation between North America in particular and India in previous decades, so in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, I was very familiar from, again, from my own experience, how much those circulations had to do with diasporic movement between um, and transnational movement between. But this was this, you know, these these movements were always, uh, they were always framed in a very particular class, caste casted uh mobility and so i was i was just really kind of excited to figure out like how how popular culture in this moment was getting kind of circulated and picked up and so i mean it it didn't it didn't occur to me but i guess when i got there it was like so clear obviously this had everything to do with 3g 4g network um networks and the kinds of infrastructure that enable them yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for your uh, answer. The other thing that I found really interesting about your text uh, was that future imaginations and futurities figure very importantly. And you sort of pitch this questions of reproductions of hip hop and recreation of like hip hop dance or song or music or whatever it is, parallelly with the policy decisions and how the master plan, for instance, of Delhi sees Delhi's future, right? So what made you sort of decide to pitch these sort of contradicting, maybe? I don't know if they're contradicting ideas of futurities, right, where they're coming from. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So, you know, I think think, uh, spending time in Delhi in this last decade, it's kind of hard to avoid uh, the impact of what this kind of world-class imaginary has done to reshape infrastructure, but then aesthetic as well, right? So the whole city feels like it's convulsed into becoming something other than what it was prior to, you know, prior to 2007, 2008. And we can mark the kinds of uh, shifts in, in very specific events, right? So, um the 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 kind of events that spur on particular uh projects of development so i'm thinking uh, of the games right the the commonwealth games asiat games um that moment i'm thinking of like the development of the metro and all of that right so i mean it's kind of like the this 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 impact of uh this impact of post liberalization development projects it's just so visceral when you when you uh, spend any time in Delhi if you have a history especially with the city it's so visceral and so trying to think about how these developments um, have reshaped the city and what impacts it's had particularly on the on the uh, on those those who live on the margins of the city right has been a project that's been quite um, well developed. Uh, in the last couple of decades, I think it's it's something that's been thought of, and so you know the, the the way that this 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 kind of relationship is narrated is that there's a top down development strategy or project, and then the recipients of those projects, uh, the ones the people that have the least say in the way that it's imagined, um, you know either kind of succumb to its its excesses or are um, succumb in the sense that they're displaced, they're kind of uh, miserated in some way or the other, or uh, there's a resistance, right? There's a, there's a particular kind of uh, organizing political resistance that happens. And, you know, spending time with these, these kids that I got to know, these young men between the ages of 15 and 24, started to get me to think, okay, so there's another way that this kind of reimagining of the capital city, but really reimagining of Indian urban urbanity, right, uh, takes place, and that is that it 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 seeds 
an opening, an opportunity to kind of imagine uh, on different terms what future a future futures could look like, and you know that has everything to do with infrastructures, right? So um, as I was saying before, the three G, four G networks become a kind of conduit by which to imagine uh, through both consumption and and uh, and uh, production of audio media materials, content for social media distribution, but then also through something like the Metro, right? So the Metro becomes a kind of uh, device for imagining futures that are ultimately about mobility, right? They're about being able to traverse spaces that have otherwise been unavailable, um, and so, you know, really trying to think about and, and then trying to think through in this book how it's not so much, a, you know, a, a one directional process, right? When we think about development and uh, kind of urban imaginaries and urban futures, but it's this dialectic process uh, that produces all sorts of unexpected possibilities and consequences, right? Right. No, thank you. That that. That was great. The other thing that I'd like to ask, and now I'm going to go back to the title, which I thought was really interesting, uh, The Globally Familiar. And I'm wondering what familiarity or evoking familiarity does for the transnational movement or the understanding of transnational movement and traffic of images, sounds and aesthetics, for instance. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I, you know, I had originally conceptualized this project for my... PhD work around uh, the concept of citizenship. And um, I was playing with this idea of aesthetic citizenship, right? So what does it mean to kind of produce um, content that then enables enfranchisement and participation in all of these ways, economic, social, sometimes even political, right? And as I was kind of thinking about citizenship, um, I started to feel like the concept was overburdened it, it, it didn't allow me to kind of think about uh, a, a kind of conceptual space beyond the state and allow myself to kind of really, really kind of open up how this move to self-make through social media and through hip hop and social media was much more, much more um, transhistorical and transpatial. Right. So so um, so the familiar was my attempt to try to kind of capture some of what it means to, you know, as I kind of describe in the book, uh, take up 1970s uh, uh, New York. Right. And it's particular styles and um, articulations of urban shift and change. And, uh, uh, you know, like uh, the Bronx, for instance, became this symbol for a lot of the young men that, that I got to know. The Bronx, the boogie down, right, like became the symbol for them to understand what they were going through in, in Delhi in 2012-13, right? So really trying to think about what was familiar for them or what they felt was something that they could grab onto that felt um, connected to their experience in Delhi. And so this idea of the familiar started kind of to come out of that. Um, then there's the theoretical side of it, right? So this was very much about what I was observing that, that got me to this place to think through and theorize the familiar as a way to understand uh, the circulation of images, sounds uh, from one particular moment, a kind of chronotopic New York circa 1970s to Delhi 2012. The other uh, way I was thinking about it was vis-a-vis linguistic um, anthropology, right? And so a lot of the work in linguistic anthropology has been uh, pushing us to think about uh, mediation vis-a-vis terms that uh, become kind of, that, that, that move into circulation and then get enregistered into language. Right. So, so for example, I, I use swag quite a bit in, in, in the talks, uh, in the talks that I do on my book. Right. So swag is a really great term because it's, it's a term that can be used linguistically 
Um, you know, it's a term that's taken to mean kind of style. It's very, it's a very gendered term, right? So swag is like a very masculinist uh, kind of way of being in the world and a style, but it's also objects or things in the world, right? So, um, so one thing we can do is we can trace something like swag as it moves from a North American context where it gets produced, right, as a as a term, mainly within um, mainly within Black communities, right. So it's a linguistic term that emerges out of uh, again a socio historical specificity. And then it travels to someplace like Delhi where it gets picked up and used, right? And so in its movement, it, it, it does something really interesting. It both stays the same in that it indexes a very particular way of being in the world that's very gendered and the particular things that make it so, but then it also changes, right? So it also shifts. It becomes a shifter. It starts to mean something new in use, in in Delhi. And so the familiar to me is a way to track and trace these kinds of terms and the uh, and the kind of material uh I would suppose I suppose the materiality of these terms, right? So how they become uh imbued into objects, into images, into into a way of seeing the city, into seeing the subject. Um, the other thing that I was, obviously you mentioned this, even as you were talking about how this project was sort of, how this came to life was the dearth of, uh, literature on non-elite masculinity, uh, lower caste masculinity, lower class masculinity in, uh, the Indian context. I was wondering if you could go into some detail about this sort of everyday globality of non-elite, uh, young men who have these complex relationships with the term that you use as aspiration, right? Um, And how they get sort of, uh, what does it mean, right? It's not the same thing, aspiration, which we take for granted in quite a bit these days, but you evoke it differently. It's a generationally different concept here as well. So I was wondering if you could go into that a little bit. Oh, that's great. So I think there's two parts to your question, if I'm not mistaken. So one is to kind of think about aspiration quite specifically as a located, right, uh, and very intersectionally, intersectionally located term with these young men. Um, and the other is to think about kind of the dearth in literature more broadly, right? And so so to the latter, um, I would say, so I was I was spending quite a lot of time trying to figure out what at some point in the last few years, what's been written uh, and uh, about men in 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 India specifically, and um, it was quite interesting. I found all these studies on semen <laughs> and like um, you know and like very kind of uh, Hindu conceptions of control, right? That are related back to kind of bodily bodily. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, secretions. Uh, there was uh, there was a you know interesting literature on uh, palwans on re- uh, wrestlers. So Joseph Atler's work, for example, um, really thinking about kind of traditions of masculinity and moral kind of frameworks of masculinity. Um, but you know what, what what became very evident to me, and uh, Sarita Amrute actually writes about this in a cultural, uh, I'm sorry, in a public culture piece that she wrote about uh, the Delhi rape case. So Sarita, who's who's a dear friend of mine, um, wrote, and I mean we've had conversations about this as well, about how you know uh, the in, in the tradition of anthropology uh, certainly, but I think also in other and other kind of scholarly traditions, the the village and the city, right? So sociology has this as well. So the village and the city get split, right? Anthropology takes on the village, the city gets taken on by sociology, right? So the 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 kind of um, spatialization of social life uh, then necessarily leads to very particular and peculiar ways of talking about gender. Um, and talking about gender in relationship to religion and so on. 
And so, um, you know, there's there seems to be like these two strands then of literature that emerge around masculinity in, in um, South Asian scholarship and specifically India scholarship, right? So you have these kind of more village studies that focus um, – that focus on uh, the kind of religious moral subject and the way that they kind of shape themselves, right, in, in, in and through religion. And then you have the the urban study, which is also still focused, uh, is often implicitly, right, on on um, on Hindu subjects, right, but middle class secular Hindu subjects who uh, produce themselves as masculine subjects vis-a-vis consumption and so on. And so there's some exceptions, of course, like I think of Sanjay Srivastava's work, you know, he's, he's interesting because he's kind of thinking, um, he's thinking in like a little bit more of a kind of, uh, a little bit more of a broad way about how to think through masculinities um, in India. And some of his pieces have been, you know, very, very influential and helpful to think with, um, particularly his work on, uh, Bajrang Dal and youth and in Delhi, right? So, so you know where where I depart from that work as well is that I you know I think I think a, often there's a compulsion, particularly in anthropology, uh, there's a compulsion to um, to want to keep the story spatialized. Uh, so that the largest scale that one can kind of engage with is the nation state. And um, and I think that there's a lot of value in that, right? I think that there's a lot of value in thinking about the national um, and thinking about that as a scale by which to understand particular processes of change, movement, mobility, and all of that. But I think, you know, as several scholars in the 90s have, have argued that um, methodological nationalism <laughs> can can be a huge limit to 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 what we can see and what we're able to engage with um and it, it doesn't allow us to see flows across right and those flows can can be mediated mediatized and mediated flows like what i pay attention to in this book but they can also be um other types of flows um i think of you know, Inderpal Grewal's book, I can't, now I'm the, the title is escaping me, but there's this one amazing chapter about Barbie dolls. I don't know if you've ever read this, but uh, it's about Barbie dolls in Delhi and how, uh, you know, young people growing up in Delhi see these uh, manifestations of American uh, genderedness, right? And they imbibe it, right? That there's this, this, this sense that we need to kind of think about Things in movement like Barbie dolls or, you know, Kendrick Lamar videos and think about what they're doing in their movement as they arrive, right? And they cross cross national boundaries and arrive someplace new. Right. No, thank you for that. That was, yeah, that was great. The other sort of part that was really interesting about your text and it keeps coming up in, in your writing is the is this engagement with this multi-sided multimedia methodology? You talk about your own presence in the field as sort of, for instance, helping uh, your interlocutors record music, right? Or, or putting up concerts. And I was wondering if you could talk more about um, your positioning in the field, right? And, and how, how that space and those intimate relationships of quote-unquote research are uh, forged. I know a lot of graduate students like me who are going into the field would be interested in that. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I was very um, cognizant of before before I even, like, sat down to try to conceptualize a, a project Right. So, you know, we go through these rites of passage, right, where we have to write this proposal, defend the proposal before we go off into the field um, in the American Academy, at least here in the UK, where I, I, um, I've been training PhD students. They come in with a more or less kind of fully formed research agenda and project. Right. But in either case, I think, you know, we're we're trying to kind of do 
especially in the discipline of anthropology or any discipline that uses ethnography as a method, right, which is so uh, is so filled with potential, the potential for kind of thinking of yourself as an instrument rather than thinking, you know, of and, and, and the relations you build as an instrument as kind of central to the process of doing the research rather than thinking about uh, the world out there as inert and the idea, you know, that the, this this kind of fantasy that we're collecting data, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, ethnography to me is a very kind of vital, alive, um, relational process. And so for me, a big question, you know, going to the field and even deciding kind of thinking through what I was going to do as a project to answer these, these bigger questions I had was to try to think about where I could actually build relationships and where I would be able to, um, to, to actually be useful. Right. Uh, and so, you know, the, the burgeoning hip hop scene in Delhi was a space that I could, I immediately thought, okay, so there's some really interesting questions those are my larger questions could be translated into really interesting kind of more specific questions that I could ask here but more importantly right I think I could I, I, I at least believed as I was going that I could um, arrive and be able to offer something in the way of my audiovisual skills as a filmmaker someone who's made or produced music in the past right um, as someone who could also be in some ways, and I write about this in the book, right, a, a familiar that is manifest, right, someone who grew up with hip hop as an Indian American in New York, all of a sudden popping up, right, in Delhi, um, in some ways kind of fulfilling the 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 kind of uh, aspiration, right, of for why a lot of these young men were doing this in the first place, which was to connect, to connect to a broader world. And um, so, you know, I, I showed up to Delhi and um, immediately, you know, I think I, I, within the first week of that, that trip I told you earlier about the, the 2012 kind of exploratory trip, within a week of arriving, I had my camera out and I was shooting a music video. Um, like one of the first, you know, kind of attempts at a music video um, in the scene and developed relationships with some of the artists who are now huge, right, in in India and are starting to get international acclaim, like making work with them, you know, when they were 17, 18-year-old kids just trying to figure out what they were going to do in the future. And so those processes of production and creation with um, were both amazing in so far as I could provide something, but they're also just in the practice of making together opened up so many frames uh, for collective analysis that I, that I hadn't anticipated. Right. Um, so there was this opportunity there for collaborative ethnographic uh, work to take place. And out of that came a couple of film projects that I shot with a couple of the groups of young men that I worked with. Um, There was also room for friction, right? So the, you know, the thing about showing up with a camera and then working with some crews of young men over others is going to create some issues, right? Mm -hmm. There were other diasporic actors on the ground who had gotten there before me Um, who were very much about trying to kind of connect in with the the bargaining scene in India and um, connect their own kind of Indian diasporic relationship with hip hop to it and influence it. And uh, so then saw me as a kind of interloper, potential threat, right? Um, There were all sorts of, you know, potentials for, friction that emerged out of this but by and large i mean you know the frictions also taught me so much so by and large this 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 kind of approach this kind of this hip-hop uh ography approach to doing ethnography in uh in delhi opened up all sorts of ways to think about changing city to think about masculinity um and to think about digital digital media Right. No, thank you for that. 
And the one thing, of course, that you mentioned and, and sort of conceptually sort of highlighted in your text is not only do these circulations of soundscapes and uh, dance movements and images involve like stylistic imitation, which is also laborious and creative in its own right, but also aesthetically reproducing them on cameras, the social media platforms for these young men, right? And producing what you call effective commodities. Um, I was wondering what this relationship, why was this conceptually necessary to highlight this labor that is put into aesthetically recreating what they're not just imitating dance movements, but aesthetically recreating them on social media platforms. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, so I mean, what I quickly figured out was um, the the kind of creative self-making play that a lot of these young men were endeavoring in in, in their small groups uh, were, was quickly getting recognized uh, in the the um, in various arenas in, in, in Delhi as potentially value-producing uh, projects, right? So value-producing insofar as uh, the images themselves, but then the images as related to or connected to commodities uh, could, uh, you know, could uh, do the work of kind of marketing or branding uh, newcomer labels, but then also established uh, labels or brands um, in India. And so, so we have to kind of step back and kind of understand this a little bit more, right. Uh, kind of broadly. So I, I think, you know, I arrived to do this research in India in a very particular moment. So it was, uh, 2012, right. Um, and it was a moment where there was, there was a sense, right. That there, that, um, there needed to be an invest, an investment in the youth markets, in India, I mean, there was all these articles in 2010 and 11, actually, that were popping up in Business Week and like, I don't know, uh, uh, some of the Outlook India about the untapped Indian market, uh, youth market, sorry, um, whose numbers are staggering, right? Like the the numbers, the number of pe- young people under the age of 35 in India is something like 600 million. So, and then, you know, a large majority of those 600 million live in urban areas. And so I started to see how these young men's serious play with each other, right, um, was quickly getting attention, which was something that they wanted, um, and that that attention was translating into the potential for them to earn a living um, in various ways, right? So I talk about that a little bit in the book, that the various kinds of work opportunities that kind of open up. Um, I also talk a little bit about how um, how branding agents, right, start to kind of imagine uh, the future of this, the future of this kind of play as a potential. Um, and, you know, I finished writing the book as a, as a dissertation in 2004, 14, 15. So since then, so what, what I end with in the book is like, look, this, this, there's this moment where these affective commodities are coming into visibility, right? So the practice of these young people is it's, as it's getting captured on an image and, and sound um, is now being tied to particular, uh, particular consumption uh, practices and activities and brands so fast forward five years, I mean, that market is now exploded. So when I arrived, Sony, Sony India, would hip hop wasn't on their radar. Um, and now, you know, just hearing from some of the guys who've made it big, like these, these bigger uh, entities like Sony are scouring for the next talent because they know that there's, that, 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 that there's so much money to be made, right? Um, vis-a-vis these artists and it's not just the music business right so it it cross cuts um, from and scale from kind of larger scale national uh, media type conglomerates or transnational or international media type conglomerates to clubs in Delhi that need uh, that need customers right and so look on YouTube to find who's got the most hits and then invite those artists to play Right. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, relating to that question of like finding work and where these artists pluck themselves vis-a-vis like new occupational aspirations different from their parents. Uh, you talk about like them being club promoters, for instance, right? But also talking about the harshly unequal ways in which they become a part of these circuits. And you also, in relation to that, mention um, some of the political disruptions that these performances are able to make uh, by these artists. And and I was wondering how, if you could like talk more about that. Sure. So uh, another two part question. So the first part, uh, <laughs> so the first part uh, is really kind of thinking about um, inequality, and you know what I would describe as kind of as a as a racialized hierarchy of of labor in a city like Delhi. And um, so, so you know, one one thing I describe is how uh, how much you know, the, the young people who I worked with, how their par- how much their parents, based on their ethnic backgrounds, get slotted into particular kinds of work, right? So, um, for instance, Northeastern uh, migrants, so from Assam and um, Manipal and, and so on, you know, when they come to Delhi, um, their parents, so the elder generation, end up working often as so if you're and it's also gendered right so it's racialized and gendered labor so if you're a woman you end up kind of getting slotted into doing service labor work either in a shop um, or domestic labor in a person's home Um, you know when i lived in delhi so much of the the middle class kind of delhiite hindu middle class narrative was Oh, northeastern women—they make the best ayahs. They make the best like childcare right workers. Mm-hmm. So, so th- you know, so we just have to understand that these labor regimes, um, these racialized labor regimes, are so hardwired. Like the Bihari man is always the 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 construction worker, right? They work in mm-hmm. in various forms of construction and um, and uh, uh, what would be, I suppose, called in in North America and Europe, blue collar work. Right, so factory work and so on, and so you know their children. Um, they arrive to a city like Delhi, and maybe they they attend school for a while, but they start to see that there are these these pathways that are quite um, narrow, right? Like that they're that they they feel like, um, and this was a, something that uh, many of the young men told me, right? Like they feel like they're just being tracked right into a particular form of labor of work, and um, you know. Uh, this kind of move to hip hop was a way to kind of try to, to disrupt that and try to find other ways of being in the world and making one's way in the world and making one's living in the world as a man. But the thing is, is these new, these new opportunities, opportunities as they started to arise, started to congeal around types, right? They, they too started to become kind of racialized labor formations. So that club promoters, right, uh, working the circuits in the Delhi clubs tended to be Northeastern. The bartenders tended to be, um, you know, the people who worked inside the, the, the space tended to be uh, um, upper caste, right? Hindus, the, the bouncers tended to be Gujars and Jats, Right. I mean, like it it just reproduced itself, um, this this kind of uh, racialized regime of masculine labor in in all sorts of uh, predictable ways, I suppose one could say. So, you know, I think that's something that I grew really interested in. And I wrote some uh, something about in the book. I mean, it's I I think that 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 uh, that kind of. Uh, reproduction and mutation of labor regimes. I think could be written. There, there could be a lot more written about that. Um, but I touch upon that in in the book for sure. Now, the second part of your question, um, I have already forgotten. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry about that. But that was more about the political disruption. Uh, the perfor- I'm sorry, I'm just trying to pack as much in. So. <laughs> sure, no, no problem, no problem. So yeah. political disruption. So, you know, hip hop is a, um, you know, I would argue is an inherently 
political aesthetic form. Um, so it, you know, it emerges out of um, out of uh, black urban life in the U.S., which has its own particular histories of migration, right? Um, and uh, and then its own particular racialized histories of of uh, of uh, marginalization and uh, and segregation and um, you know we're seeing we're seeing again right in this moment with with uh, George Floyd and BLM like the the kind of constant afterlives uh, the constant reproduction of the afterlives of uh, uh, transatlantic slavery. Uh, in the U.S. and hip hop is, you know, part and parcel of that story. It emerges out of that story. It's a, it's a, it's a quintessentially political um, art form as, as a result. So I think, you know, hip hop's interesting, right? Because uh, it it travels. It's moved. It, it it emerged in the nineteen late nineteen seventies in the U.S. Um, by the time, you know, by the time I was ten. So I'm going to give away my age here. <laughs> so by the time I was 12, it was 1986, right? And I had my first uh, fat tip marker. And I was like, when my parents weren't looking, I was tagging up poles in, in New York City subway stations, right? Me, a little Indian kid, 12-year-old Indian kid, right? Um, <laughs> you know, had had found something about this this aesthetic form that allowed me to disrupt right already at the age of 12 uh an idea of what the world is is and how it should be constituted right and and, and that's been the appeal of hip-hop since it's it's emerged so it quickly became a uh, uh you know i would say by the time i started writing or tagging up <laughs> polls in new york city it was already a multi-billion dollar industry worldwide so it's been picked up appropriated um, you know, um, sincerely, uh, insincerely, and so on, all across the world. And so, you know, it arrives in India um, in this way, this kind of um, fulsome way, right, where it gets picked up in, in mass uh, and it gets picked up by those those on the margins in, in a city like Delhi in uh 2008 2009 2010 and and you know a, a big part of the appeal right is this this potential it has to rupture to to break norms to to produce maybe the potential for a different kind of future um and then a, a future that's about collective life right collective life that's not bounded by pre preformed categories um but then you know the the possibility of making money right also emerges simultaneously the possibility of being an individual making it through something like hip hop so it replays its story hip hop in a sense you know it's 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 tension the tension of its of its uh, origin right like coming out, coming out of new york city replays itself in a place like Delhi. I just wrote a piece with a, a friend of mine Jaspal Singh for a journal called uh, it's a brand new journal. It's Global Hip Hop Studies, and we write about DIY studios and precisely this tension, right? This potential for hip hop to be political, to 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 actually rupture, push back, um, and then it's it's commercial promise. And so the scene I think you read um, that I that I kind of talk about this with was a scene where this young man, all of a sudden, in this event that's on a college campus in South Delhi. Right, so he's just won a b-boying prize. So he's he's got a trophy in his hand. He's asked to say a few words, maybe rap a little bit, and he starts to kind of talk a little bit about the Delhi rape case to this middle class, right, um, upper caste college audience. And then he starts to talk about his own kind of getting slotted, right. So he talks about working at McDonald's and like that's his future, right. Um, and he starts to get, you know agitated and passionate and in that moment you can kind of see both right both of these strands of hip-hop's possibility right it's politicality and it's possibility for uh, producing an economic future come together and that i was really I, I mean i continue to be to be fascinated by right right no thank you that was that was great uh one last question it doesn't have to be a long answer uh but it's about 
intimacy and that's such a crucial theme in your book not only the intimacy between you and your interlocutors but the intimacy between these young men right who perform together and practice together and also especially in a climate where groups of lower class lower caste young men are automatically seen as threatening especially in the light of uh, the delhi rape case that you mentioned uh what does this mean positioning yourself within this being intimate as like lower caste lower caste male in in whatever capacity in public spaces where you're perceived as a threat yeah it's uh, that's a really that's a nice question so i think you know it, it it was always fascinating for me to go with groups different crews of young men when they went to go practice in different public spaces so you know the the threat they posed actually so 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 i'll give a couple of examples right so um and i write about this in a chapter in a collected volume about my my trips to to um one of these big malls in south delhi right which is right across the street from the urban village where one of the crews that i was spending time with lived so we would cross this really busy road we would have to like dodge cars and jump over a fence between in the in the barricade and cross the roads and then we'd get to the security area and um the people that were most threatened or the 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 people who felt the most um kind of worried about these young people walking into the mall were often young men a little bit older than these kids who were working as security guards right so often again thinking about those racialized regimes of labor these were these were men that came from you know from some of the same places the young men i was working with came from they came from bihar um i actually got to know a few of these particular this this set of security guards just having gone there so many times you know and, and their their anxiety was uh produced because they felt these kids so close to them right they were policing the boundaries of the mall um for you know their their employers with these young people in their minds as the people to keep out but you know once the kids got in um they would start to dance and practice uh practice their moves sometimes sometimes they would uh, have a a a rap cipher and they would start attracting the middle class uh mall goers with their smartphones pulled out and uh, trying to capture some of the fun. And uh, they didn't threaten them at all, right? They they were just another uh, another spectacle to consume in the mall. Um, and I know Arlene Davila, who writes a lot about malls in South America, talks about how the mall outside of North America is actually a space for all sorts of um, intangible consumptions like this, right? Like uh, in, in Latin America, certainly, and, and in India too, right? There's there's all of these kind of spontaneous potential spontaneous happenings that become part and parcel of what the mall offers. So there was this really interesting moment, right? Like where I was going there, they were getting harassed by security guards. Um, but then all these, you know, once they like managed to evade the security guards get in and they were able to kind of uh, practice on the thing and uh, attract a crowd. There was a moment where a group of security guards came over to try to harass uh, the, the crew that I was with. And uh, what their boss essentially had been watching on CCTV the whole thing go down. And he came down from where he was sitting and he was like, why are you bothering these kids? They clearly are attracting an audience. They dance really well, like leave them alone. <laughs> and it was, it was a really like, it was an important moment, right? Like it was a moment where it was like so clear um, what it, what it means to kind of, uh, think about difference and think about hierarchies of labor in relationship to, to, you know, consumer capitalism, which so easily, so seamlessly, like, uh, can, can appropriate, right. Um, difference and, and make it productive in, in this way. And so, I mean, I think, you know, I think, um, this tension, this tension got played out in all sorts of different ways in my time in Delhi, but you know that maybe the takeaway here, right, is um, often those who do the policing uh, around boundaries of spatialized difference, 
racialized difference um, tend to be those who are actually also subordinated by the larger structures and systems, right? Um, and those who, you know, those who are, um, those who are kind of, um, kind of in their bubbles, their middle class bubbles, don't have to do the immediate work of that. They can consume a, they can consume difference when they want, and then they can, you know, they can worry also about, uh, you know, the undesirable other in the safety of their homes, watching TV. Like they're they're not at the front lines, like experiencing the frictions of these things, right? Um, and there's something about that that's quite important, right? Especially as we we start start to think about uh, the the moment we're in. In, in India with, you know, the rise of fascist Hindutva, the, the continuous rise of fascist Hindutva for the last many years, right? So I, I have a friend, Sahana Udupa, who writes about extreme speech. And, um, you know, the, the, the folks who sit in Twitter and kind of the bucks, the, the like digital bucks who sit on Twitter and like put out all sorts of hateful, um, Islamophobic uh, casteist stuff, like, I wonder who they were in the mall, right? Like, were they were they one of those people that were sitting there videotaping the the performance? Like, what did they think was going on? Like, who did they think these kids were? Um, and I think you know, I think these tensions are, are tensions that we need to kind of think about and tease out. Right. Yeah. No, that was great. Uh, thank you so much for your patience, but also thank you for joining us and for all of your wonderful insights. I am Lakshata Malik, and this discussion of the globally familiar digital hip-hop, masculinity, and urban space in Delhi, published by Duke University Press, set to release in October 2020, has been brought to you by the New Books Network in association with Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And the first chapter of this book should be available to download. Uh, The introduction should be available to download soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.